0: Take your Bibles and join me in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, please, for our Bible study this morning. If you need notes, the fellows have that. As you're turning, let me tell you a story about a gentleman. His name is Joshua L. Cohen. He lived back in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. As a boy, he was one who liked to fiddle with things and do things, and he showed much talent. One of the things that he did as a youngster of just seven years age, he carved himself an entire train set, one that even the neighbors wanted to buy because it was done so so well, and in fact, he did carve a few more and sold some of them as a youngster. He gets into his teen years, and he likes to do more tinkering, and by the time he's in his early 20s, he wants to be an inventor. That's how he's going to make his his fame. That's how he's going to become great in society. That's how he's going to get rich, and so he comes up with ideas for inventions, and he has several of them. One of those that came up during that time as a young man in his early 20s is he developed an idea for a battery that could be put into a pot of plants and it would light up the plants and he called it his flower pot uh, lamp and so he was going to sell that off and get this manufactured so that restaurants or in store windows or people in their home that wanted to display their flowers could do it throughout the night and could just show their the beauty of their plants and so he wanted to get this device on the market but there were so many legal things going on because a lot of people were fooling with similar type of devices by that point so he just figured I'm getting rid of it so he sold it for a song and a dance basically to to a friend and his name, that his friend is Conrad Hubert who just thought it was a fabulous idea. He didn't want the plants to be lit up. Conrad Hubert bought this thing from, from a Cohen for just a little bit of monies, so that he could develop the idea of putting this battery operated light in people's hands not in flower pot, pots. And this fellow who bought it, Conrad Hubert, he went and started a company called the American Ever Ready Company. You ever hear of it? He started to make batteries for the flashlights that he started producing and made himself a fortune. Afterwards, Cohen realized, well, he lost out on a fortune, lost out on fame. And so he thought, well, there's got to be something else. And he was kind of discouraged. So what he did is he, just for that period of time when he was disappointed and he thought that greatness had passed him by, he decided to go back to his tinkering as a boy and started whittling some trains. And then he decided, hey, you know what? You know, maybe I could make one of these trains to be self-propelled. And so he made a little motor and stuck it in one of the trains just to amuse himself. Well, it amused his neighbors. And after a little bit, he all of a sudden had more and more neighbors asking him, could we get one of those little trains with the motor in it? And so he started then selling them in the neighborhood. And then he started selling them on a catalog. And then he, after a while, he developed this business. Oh, by the way, did I tell you his middle name? His Joshua L. stands for Lionel. Okay. And so he developed this entire company and found fame and fortune by going back to something that was so simple and something that seemed so insignificant. I think that is true the way greatness often works. Greatness is often found in the most unexpected ways. That's what Jesus is talking about in in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is dealing with his disciples. And once again, he's got these disciples that are in, can I use Pennsylvania Dutch? They're driving them nuts. Okay they are arguing amongst themselves. They have this recurring problem that they don't get along. These disciples have this issue of getting along with one another is just a real trial and a real trouble. And that's amazing by the time we come to Mark chapter 9 because in Mark chapter 9 these guys have been together for over 18 months and they're still having a problem. Many of them are related. We know there's three sets of brothers within the uh, twelve apostles. As well, they most of them grew up in the same town, the same region, region so they've been friends for a long, long time. Well, maybe you think that's why they had so many problems. They were brothers or they knew each other so well. But Jesus expected more of them than what he's getting. What he's getting instead is a lot of hassle. You want to see how Mark highlights that? It's interesting what Mark does in this text where he's going to be showing about how these guys, they are not like the three musketeers. They are not getting along. There's three times in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10 that Mark shares that Jesus talks about his upcoming death, burial, and resurrection. More about his death and burial. And it's interesting each time when he says Jesus says this how I'm going to suffer, it's interesting to notice the reaction of the disciples. Let me show you. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and we'll come back to 9 in a second. Mark chapter 8 verse 31, he began to teach them, this is Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Watch how Peter responds. He doesn't agree with Jesus. He's argumentative with Jesus. Peter says, you cannot do this. And Jesus' response is, get thee behind me Satan. So Peter doesn't agree with the Lord and he becomes argumentative with the Lord. We're going to jump to chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We'll jump ahead and come back in Mark chapter 9 in a second. Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 33. Jesus in this same period of time says, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and the scribes. They shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him, scourge him, spit on him, shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. You would think that the disciples would say, Lord, how could they be so mean to you? Notice how they respond. Soon as they hear that, James and John ask for what? Can we sit on your seats next to you? Can we, you know, What's in it for us? How are we going to get out of this? And the rest of the disciples get mad and get jealous. Nobody is thinking about Jesus going to the cross. They're all thinking about their own crowns. They're all thinking about their own benefit. Mark chapter 9. Jesus is in the same setting. It's amazing. Again, Jesus is talking to them and he says, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And after that he is killed. They shall rise the third day. They don't understand. Verse 32. But go a little bit further. What it says is Jesus approaches them when they get to the house where they're stopping and it says what were you arguing about and they were arguing about after Jesus said I'm going to die they were arguing about which of them was the greatest time and time again he's revealing his humility he's revealing his sacrifice he's revealing how he is serving others and they're all about being served getting served and so Jesus is going along they come to this house. And what's interesting the terms, they come to this house in Capernaum. And just to give you a historical background, they have been in this Galilean region, the northern region. Down here's Jerusalem. They've been in this northern region. They pause at Capernaum because they're on their way to Jerusalem. This is the last journey that Jesus is going to make to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And so this is his death walk, his baton walk, where all of a sudden he is headed for Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm headed this way. Well, they still Stop at Capernaum and they go into, in the Greek it has the house. So there's a specific house, I don't know whose it is. They stop at the house, one that they're familiar with, and it says he sat down to teach them. Now in Jewish culture, you and I you, they would do a little bit different. Okay? We stand to teach and, and we, we typically would say, okay, get above our kids and say, now look at me. And we're going to be authoritative and so we kind of do it. In Jewish culture it wouldn't be that way. In Jewish culture if I really want you to listen and I really want to get your attention I sit down. And so he sits down and this is his serious talk with his disciples. And he gives them a very serious conversation. You read about that conversation that he is getting across to them about a serious matter. You read all about it from about verse 35 all the way down to the end of the chapter go to the end of the chapter. Catch with me what, how he wraps this up. Because wrapping it up brings it all together. At the end of the conversation, he makes a couple comments. He says in chapter 9 down in verse 39, everyone shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. And you and I look at that and go, uh... What? What are you talking about? Let's see if we can get a little, bit of a little bit of a help here. Okay. Salt was a very precious commodity back then. It still has its value today. But without refrigerators, without, without a lot of the devices we have, it was really important for food. Without the medicines that we have, it was really important for dealing with wounds and sores and things like that. So they would use it to preserve their foods. They would use it in order to help cleanse the wounds. They would use to the point, by the way, that it even became saleros is salt, salary. They would make payments at times. Roman soldiers were paid with salt. And so it was a really important commodity. Oh, yeah, they would use it to help with the flavor, but it was used more for purifying and preserving. And so this, talking about it, he is going to make that comment that salt has really, really good value. You folk, you guys, who I've been telling you I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, you guys are going to be salted with fire. You're going to be purified. You're going to go through experiences that you don't think. You keep on thinking about the crowns and all the good things, you're going to have some troubles. You're going to have some problems, but it's going to be to your benefit. It's going to help you spiritually. It's going, to, it's going to improve. And just like salt could be used in the sense of making even a sacrifice better because it was a valuable commodity that when you make a sacrifice, you could even add salt to it and it would enhance the sacrifice out of your pocketbook as well as in presence before the Lord. He said, you're a sacrifice. You're giving your life to the Lord, but you're going to be improved. You're going to be salted even more because of the trials that are going to come into your life. And you're not expecting them. So your service is going to become even more improved. But what you have to realize, salt is a good thing. And you guys are going to, supposed to be the salt of the earth. And so I'm going to, I'm going to even make you better and better to make an impact upon other people's lives. But there is the possibility with Dead Sea Salt that it would lose its saltiness. It would lose its value. So that, they knew this. And so he makes that comment. He says, but if the saltiness... If you, who are supposed to be preserving, if you, who are supposed to be purifying the world around you, if you lose your impact, what good are you? If you are all about getting, 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 and gaining, when I am here talking about sacrifice and serving, what good are you? And then he ends with this comment. He ends with this statement. If you look at it, he says, Have the salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Why? They keep on arguing. They keep on having conflicts. How can they minister to other people if they don't get along? How can they expect the world to be influenced by their salt if they have lost the saltiness between them? If they are conflicts, having conflicts amongst themselves, if they aren't working with each other, if they aren't trying to build up each other, how are they going to help the world around them? You know, if I can just rephrase this one phrase and put it this way. His point is simply this, be godly towards other disciples. Be godly towards one another. That's his call. That's what he's asking them to do. And he tells them, if now we back up and see the entire conversation, he mentions three areas that they need to work on that would help them to become more godly towards each other. That first area is the area that starts off this whole story. Serving others, not wanting to be served. That includes one another. He starts off at the story. Let's pick up the beginning of this conversation. Back in thir- verse 33. Back in verse 33, they've come into the house. They've sat down. He's beginning the conversation. He asked them, yeah, what were you guys arguing about? When I told you I was going to die, I'm sacrificing everything. What was it that you guys were arguing about? And here's what happens. Their response is deafening silence nobody's moving. You could hear a pin drop amongst the 12 because they feel embarrassed because they know exactly where this is going. They have been arguing over who would be the greatest. Which of them is going to get the greatest applause? Which of them is going to have the greatest seats? You understand their culture, where they're from. Their culture is so different than ours. Their culture was built about getting ahead. Can you imagine living in a society like that where it's all about me, myself, and I? Can you imagine that? This Jewish culture was all about you know, making, making distinctions. The way you would dress. The way you would walk down the streets. You would walk certain paces behind the leading peoples. Nobody would walk side by side for some, next to somebody who's important. You would follow them. The rabbi would lead. The Pharisees, they would lead. The Sadducees, they would lead. Their entourage would be behind them. You could always pick out the real, the real important people because there would be people walking behind them. You could pick it out by the way they dressed. They would have certain fringes. They would have certain embroidering done. And that signified they were of a certain class. They were of a certain importance. You know, the basketball stars. They might be walking around with certain collecti- collectible items. The people who were the politicians. They would have certain things on their clothes that would show their importance and their status in society. The, sa- the society was all about status. When you go into a public place and you sit. Even for a community banquet there would be certain seats that would be reserved that only the hoi polloi of the community of those who are going to be honored would sit there. And so it was all about positioning yourself. Which seat would you get? You want to be closest to the front? Not so you could see. Not so you could hear. Not so that you could be in the splash zone during the pulpit time. But rather you would want to be towards the front. You know back in those days you would not want to be in the balcony. Because the people living, living, uh, the people sitting in the balcony, they were the, no offense folk, they were the low class. Okay. That's not, I'm not, I'm not implying any, so sit back down, don't walk out. Okay. (laughs) And you wouldn't want to sit near the rear because you were saying that you were the servant to everybody else. So you would always want to sit to the front. And so they're living in this society where, where it's being noticed Public recognition was really big for them and it was a part of their entire mindset. This was drilled into them. Can you imagine that being the case? That people want to get ahead of other people? And so here he is, he's talking to the disciples who have, who have basically swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. They have attached themselves to Jesus who is talking about he's a king and he's going to be in a prominent spot and here they are, lowly fishermen. Here they are, they're nobodies. But they can be a somebody by attaching to Jesus and not only are they content with being somebody by being attached to Jesus, they want the most important spots. This is their moment. And they're arguing over which seats do we get. We want to be really at the preeminent spots. And Jesus then gives them a conversation and an instruction that he sits down and says, look at me eyeball to eyeball, this is important. Now he's not going to condemn leadership. He's not going to condemn positioning where there's somebody in charge or there's an authority and there's a structure. That's not what he does. He doesn't do that. But what he does say to them is very revolutionary. What he is going to say in these next few moments totally turns Jewish culture on top of its head. It totally reverses Roman culture. What It totally reverses Greek culture. The entire ancient Near Eastern world, the A.N.E., that you'll see in my notes at times. It's just turning the world upside down by saying, listen, you want to be great, it's not about where you sit. You want to be great, it, it, doesn't worry. it doesn't matter about your clothing. You want to be great, it's not about the money. It's not about the, the jingling, jangling jewels that you have that signify what you are. It's not about your positioning. He's basically talking, saying, hey, you who are in the balcony of that day, you want to be great, here's how you get to be great. And, by the way, let's state this from the beginning. You have an opportunity in Jesus' world. Everybody has an opportunity for greatness. That's revolutionary. Back in those days, if you were of a certain class, you didn't have a chance. Jesus is saying, you got a chance. Everyone has a chance. How do you become great? True greatness, he says in verse 35. If any desire to be first or great, the same shall be last of all, servant of all. And so this open opportunity is very simply this. Seek to be last, not to be first. Now that shows up when we get in the line to eat. That'll show up this week, Pastor Art, when we have camp. Okay, Who gets to be first at you know, for the snacks? Okay, something so simple. It'll show up who gets the best seats. You know, ride in the van or ride in the bus. I want the van. Okay. okay. Yeah, you too? You got the bus. Okay. But it'll be, a, you know, th- those little things show up that way. In general, it says, seek not. You and I should have this as our mindset, not to be first all the time. Not to be first and, and saying, okay, it's, it's all about me. Then he says, seek to, and he uses a word that's a little bit different here. He doesn't use doulos. He says the idea, servant, he uses diakonoi. Where do we get from that? Deacon. It's a different word. Duloy was the lowliest of servants where he talks about serve one another in John 13 washing feet. That's a duloy. Here he used a diakonoi. The idea is table waiting. Serving other people. Meeting their needs. Running. Literally it meant to stir up the dust as you're running so fast to meet other people's needs at the table. And he's saying the servant of all is, is go about working to meet other people's needs. That's the word. That's the idea. To go in waiting upon others, meeting and doing for them what they need to be done. Then he makes the comment that you do this a servant of all, without discrimination. Well, that absolutely smacks in the face of Jewish society. Those who would serve would only serve somebody who could return the favor. I would only have certain people in my home if they could have me back in their home. I'd only put certain people at key positions and, and give them public honor if they would return the favor. And he's saying that's not where in my, in, in my Christian world that's not where we're at. In my Christian world it's not about sitting up here, it's serving everybody. In Jesus says in my Christian world it is about doing for others. In my Christian world it is about doing for everybody, anybody, even those to whom they cannot give you benefit back. That's absolutely amazing that he's saying this to the disciples. And it's a phenomenal thought. By the way, put it in its context, the greatest of all beings who deserves to be served is the one who says, you should serve. The one who, should be, who, is, who is at this very moment, while he is talking to them, he is displaying the greatest service to mankind think about it. He has just announced to them twice, chapter 8, chapter 9, I'm headed to Jerusalem and I'm going to be beaten. I'm the Christ. I'm the king. I'm the creator. And I am going to submit myself to the lowliest of servants where I am going to become, for your benefit, for my benefit, I'm going to let them brutalize me. I'm going to let them attack me. Here he is on a mission of humility, on a mission of sacrifice, and a mission to serve. He is en route to Jerusalem. The greatest service that anybody has ever done for any of us in this room and all of us in this room. Jesus is giving his life for you and me. This is his plan. This is his intent. This is where he's traveling to. This is his running down to serve others, stirring up the dust Setting his face like a flint, we read in Isaiah, so as to give his life in service for you and me, so we can have forgiveness, so we can have. God's favor so that one day we have his righteousness shared with us so we can enter into heaven and all we need to do is repent of our sin call upon him to give us some of that righteousness that he possesses to give us some of that forgiveness that he bought for us and put it on our account if we call with repentance he then saves our soul forgives us covers us with his own righteousness shares that with us so when the father looks at us he sees the righteousness of Christ upon us the greatest of servants, the greatest of beings in a mission of mercy is saying to his friends, stop thinking about yourselves. Here he is, the great example. And so guys, just look what I'm doing. Just look what I'm doing. You're supposed to have the mind of Christ and not exalt yourself but exalt others. Then to top it off, to help them out, he uses an illustration. He grabs a little child, a little child, and he holds the child. You have to understand the culture. In that culture, the children were not looked upon like kindness. If I grabbed a little child and brought a little kind, we do it this at times. We do this sometimes in the services in the evenings where we have kids' choruses. We bring the little kids up and we have them do their, their music and we do that because it's entertaining, it's fun, and we look at the kids with fondness and we enjoy them unable to do the actions and waving at us and they're, they're cute. Not in that culture. In that culture, that's not how they would do, put kids, you would never put a kid on a platform. Not in that culture. In that culture, kids were to be seen but not. Kids were dependents. That means in in that culture, and I'm not saying they weren't loved by parents, but generally kids were looked at, basically those kids who were unable to produce, they were looked at more of a expenditure than a benefit to the family. And again, remember, you've got to put yourself out of American culture. Back in that days, it's all about survival. And survival was basically get your daily bread. And so the more mouths you have to feed wasn't necessarily exciting until and unless they were able to contribute to the farm work. Contribute to watching the animals. So the little ones who weren't able yet to contribute, they were more of a drain than a delight. That's the culture. That's the mindset. It's different than you and and uh, my idea. In fact, the word that Jesus may have spoken, and it'll show up here in a note somewhere. The word that Jesus spoke, if he's speaking Aramaic, which we understand he does, the word for little child and the word for servant were both the same. That's how they compared them. Atalia. In the the Aramaic language. So when he's talking, oh, there it is. When he's talking and making that comment, he's saying, okay, he's got this little child who none of us, none of us, if we were living that culture, we would say greatness is coming up and focusing on kids. Nobody would do that. There is no benefit. There is only a drain to focus on the kids. In fact, what did the disciples do with little kids at another occasion? They kept them away from Jesus and his response was, suffer, children come to me. They're, that's their culture. That's the way it operated. And so he says and makes this comment, unless you receive one of these little ones, he's saying in my name, he says you're not going to be great. Wow, what a, what a, what a challenge to them. This was his illustration of where it goes. That word of receive, you've got to show kindness towards them. You've got to show care for them. You've got to diakonoi, serve those needs of those children. And that is the beginning. As we read in verse 36, he took the child, set the child in the midst of them. And he says, whosoever shall receive one of the such children in my name receives me. Oh, watch how he completes this. And whosoever shall receive me receives not just me, but him that sent me. Whoa, what, what tremendous statements. What a challenge. If you do this, If you really care for the insignificant ones, that's what his point is. He's not saying daycare workers are going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Okay, that that and that class alone. Nursery workers, that's why you work in a church nursery, is because you're the greatest in the kingdom. Well, you are, but it's not just this physical, it's the whole concept. The people who are insignificant, the people who are lowly, the people that are often overlooked, you care for them. If you focus on them and you serve them, It's easy to serve a king because you might get a reward. It's easy to serve a rich man because you might get something out of him. You might be put in his will. He says, focus on somebody who can give you nothing. The illustration, a kid. A little kid who can do nothing for you. If you do this, here's greatness. You receive me. You and I will have a closer fellowship. Not only that, you and the Father will have a closer fellowship. That's greatness. Your spiritual greatness depends upon how you treat other people and especially reaching out to the lowly ones, serving other individuals. Those who don't look like you can serve. Here a picture of greatness. You've, you've remembered that the colonial troops had a lot of difficulties. Well Washington was away trying to get some more supplies. And uh, so he was still away from the camp and some of the, he had left orders that they need to get themselves, get fortified, get some defenses taken care of and it was down in the Philly region that they were supposed to get these fences and fortifications done. While he was away there's a story that, that is told about one group that was under this corporal that were supposed to build up some of the ramparts. And they were supposed to take the rocks and take some of the trees that were nearby one of those fields. And they were working at it. And a civilian comes by riding up on a horse and he sees some soldiers working and he sees some man sitting on the horse bossing them around telling everybody what to do, yelling at them, calling them names. And the civilian says uh, how come you're not working with these soldiers if you're yelling and saying this is so important, he says, well, I'm a corporal. I don't have to work. I'm a corporal. And the man said, well, isn't this supposed to be done already? Aren't you guys, from what I hear, isn't, didn't, didn't the general say all this was, yeah, these guys just don't work fast enough. Well, would it be helpful if you worked with them? I'm a corporal. So the man got off of the horse, the man in civilian clothes, and he helped the soldiers. When it was all done, the corporal said, well, I guess I should thank you for what help you gave, you know, these men should have been able to do it themselves. You know, they're just lazy, whatever. And he says, you know, but thank you for helping. It did go much faster and you seem to have some real good ideas about how to do this. Have you ever done this before? Yeah, I've done some of this before. But I tell you what, corporal, and here's the quote that we read that's supposed to happen. Corporal, the next time you need a necessary job done that you feel you're above doing, just send a note to your commander-in-chief, George Washington, and I'll see if I'm free to come and lend a hand. That's greatness. That's greatness. Greatness is saying, I can do even the lowly task to make sure it gets done. And to help those who are in the middle of it. The corporal had the wrong mindset. He had that mindset that the disciples had, I'm above it all. Washington had the right idea. That greatness is not holding a position, being recognized, it's getting the job done by good leadership. So we have this. We have this idea. That you and I, if we're going to portray greatness, we need to serve other people. That service can be done by lowly things. It can be done by cleaning, be done by visiting, it can be done by encouraging, it can be done by just fellowshipping and building up. It can be done by doing the most lowly tasks. Instead of having things done for you, do for others. Serve, serve, serve. Even in the little ways, in the undistinguishable ways, in the ways that in the middle of camp this week, serve others. In the middle of your household activities, in your family reunion activities, serve others. Serve, serve, serve. That's his concept. He says that here's where it is. Disciples are to be godly towards one another by seeking to serve one another. Give you something else. Godly godly towards one another by seeking to build disciples up, not tear them down. Watch what happens. The conversation continues the conversation and John it says in verse 38 answered him what, what do you mean John answered him? John the apostle speaks up at this moment about receiving people and serving people and John speaks up as if to say I'm not sure how else to render this John is, is going to answer is going to put something in Is okay that's a good thought but here's when you don't receive someone let me Jesus let me add to your teaching I'll give a PS I'll give an addendum you, you don't serve people, and I'll, and I'll illustrate how we didn't receive somebody and we were justified in doing it. And he goes on, he gives the story. He says, we answered, he said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name and he followed not us. We forbade him because he followed not us. And so he's very proud of this. He's very excited about this. This is when you don't receive somebody. This fella, he didn't follow us. Now, I could pause and should have at at times, pause and have a lengthy discussion about what this passage says about the spirit world. This is such a critical thought for us that deserves an entire series because we in America are so materialistic. We are so physical oriented. We are so scientifically oriented that at times we don't understand the world the way the world around us does. Many other areas of the world, when you talk about spiritism, when you talk about the spiritual realm, they get it. They will say right away there is demonic activity, there is spiritual activity. But when we come to here in America and we talk about warfare in the spiritual realm, even within the Christian community, it's poo-pooed. There are times and surveys that show that amongst the young people that the majority of Christian young people don't even believe there's a Satan that exists anymore. That's a shame because he is the enemy that you need to be on guard against. But if you don't think he's a threat, oh, that makes us so much more vulnerable. And so Jesus very clearly in this text is accepting the idea demons are real. He doesn't debate casting out demons at all. He makes it very clear that they are opposed and need to be cast out. And he's even going to defend the man who's casting him out because these are real beings that are actively involved in opposing Christianity. And they can be overcome in Jesus' name. And so Jesus has some teaching here that is really, really important that he and he alone is the one who empowers us to be able to combat this spirit world. But that's not the main focus. That's for another series. He says, when they say we forbade that man, and you have to understand why John said we stopped him. Maybe the we is he and James. I don't know what other disciples. But he says, we stopped this guy because he didn't follow us. Okay? He didn't say because he didn't follow you, Jesus. He didn't follow us. Our criteria of fellowship is not based upon you and me, it's about people's relationship with Christ. That's the criteria. This whole ministry isn't about us, it's about Jesus Christ. That's his point. His point is, what is his belief? And that's where Jesus responds. What is important is this man's belief and relationship with Christ. What does he believe about Christ? How is he tied to Christ? And since this man was serving in the name of Jesus, and understand Jesus is highlighting this idea that it is only through his name that these things can be done. Now, just pause why, why would James and John or whoever, why would the we stop this man because he didn't follow us? Were they, were they no good in their mind? The guy's no good because he's not a part of our group? Can you imagine people thinking that? Can you imagine that unless they come to you know, our thing, they're not spiritual? Can you imagine somebody thinking that? That's amazing. Unless they belong to our church, they're not good. And so they had this mindset, you know, and and let's be honest, it is easier to be critical and judge somebody that you don't know. To make some first impression judgments, which Jesus right here in this text is saying, you can't do that, okay, but that's easy to do. I think that a lot of it has to do with what happened just previous. If you go to the early part of chapter 9, This really plays into it. Look at the setting of the early part of chapter 9. Remember these guys want to have the parts of the kingdom. They don't want to divide it any smaller than the monks of twelve. But go back earlier in chapter 9. Before this whole discussion what is the story that you read in chapter 9 verses 14 down through verse 29? What is this? It is the disciples being unable to do what? Cast out a demon. And Jesus says this can only come out by prayer and fasting. The disciples, some of the the we who stopped this man, could it be, could it be that they are mad, they are jealous that this man is doing something they couldn't do. And so they're jealous of this man's prayer life, and they, they, say, they say, We stopped him. Jesus' response is amazing. Forbid him not. Forbid him not. Don't you dare do this now or don't you do it in the future. No one, he says, can do miracles like this without properly believing in me. Well, that makes perfect sense. Remember what 1 Corinthians says? I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. His point is, this man's got the spirit, or he's got the, the ministry of the future, ministry of the spirit that's similar in his life. He is doing what's right at this moment. This guy is, is on our side. You, you, you can't stop him. In fact, even if they're not a part of this group, they are partners with us. He doesn't have to be right here in this assembly, but he's a partner because we're working for the same thing. We're trying to destroy the evil in the world and trying to promote repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. What's he getting at? There's a lot of things we can talk about, but this is, to me is very important. He's, he's ad, he's, is he advocating that what we do is drop all concerns about doctrine as long as they use Jesus' name? As long as they say Jesus Christ, then they're okay. Well, I know a lot of people that say Jesus Christ in a wrong way. You know, when they do something bad and hurtful, they use his name. He's not advocating that. Is he advocating that as long as in their creed somewhere, in their church creed, in their church in their church statement, they say Jesus Christ is God, then we should just hook, line, and sink or yoke up with them? No, no, no. That's not what he's advocating throughout scripture. We know that. He's already you know, put in scriptures. You know, he's already made statements about you know, pointing out whether somebody has real fruit in their life. He's already given the Sermon on the Mount that some will claim that they're casting out demons in his name but they don't have fruitfulness. He's already pointed that out. John 17, he's going to talk about being sanctified by truth. Truth and love and unity is the key. We can go to multiple epistles that would talk about don't we are an angel from heaven come and preach any other gospel than the gospel that is preached. Let him be accursed. We could run to 2 Timothy where it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So he's not advocating, well, as long as they just they just talk about Jesus in any way, shape, or form, it's okay. He's not, but but here's what he's advocating for those of us now, doctrine doctrine isn't his big point. It's a concern for us. But his big point to his disciples, right here at this moment, was this. He was saying they need to consider more inclusiveness than exclusiveness in their attitude. To to stop being so combative when it isn't necessary, when it isn't appropriate. And that's not, I'm not talking, please don't react to say, oh, you're talking about you know we should get together with everybody no matter what they believe. I I don't believe that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying what he's talking about to his disciples is that those disciples at times exclude themselves from others who are believing right and ministering right and we attack them when we shouldn't. When Peter, or when Paul even writes from prison, he says, hey, listen, I don't care if they're doing it out of the wrong motive. The gospel of Christ is being presented. And I'm thankful for that. Hey, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Just because we don't know someone doesn't mean that they're fair game for us to criticize. We don't know anything about them, but I'm sure they're not good because I don't know about them. <laughs> Are you kidding? What criteria is that? Is it Should we, just because they're in a different church in this community, they're in a different church means that we can criticize them? That we can attack their ministries because they're not a part of our church? Who said that this is the only church that can be in this, this community? Who said, now I think this is the best church in the community because I think we have the greatest congregation. But that doesn't mean that the others are our enemies. This isn't a a marketplace for souls to see who can get the most. We're not in a competition as a car salesman would be or a grocery store. We're trying to win the world to Christ. And if other brothers and sisters are in a different ministry winning people to Christ, God bless them and let us pray for them. And let us encourage their ministries and not condemn their ministries. Might they do things different? Might they have different standards? Might they impose that everybody should have a tuft? Well, that's a thought, okay? (laughs) God bless those ministries. You know where, where it just irritates? Because they don't go to my Christian college, they're not as spiritual as me. Really? Really? Which one of the Christian colleges is the only one that God has started? Which one of them, which one of the Christian day schools in this region is the only one to be, that the others should all stop? If they're doing the work for Christ with right doctrine, God bless them and let's pray for them. And let's consider them not our enemies, but our brothers and sisters. Now, I'm going to still keep my nose to the grindstone with this ministry because this is the flock that God has given me. But the others are not our enemies. And there needs to be that attitude that we are saying, wait, wait a minute. Even if we're not involved with the same ministry, they, we, we've got to be careful what we say and what we, how we talk and how we treat others. Then he adds to this. Then he, Watch what he adds on top of this. Then after he says, don't do this, don't, you know, don't stop them, he goes on and makes a statement, for whosoever is not against us is what? He's for us. He didn't stop there. Look at your Bibles. He continues with another statement in this same setting. He adds to that. He says, whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. What does that have to do with the price of meat in China? How do those things go together? They go together wonderfully. Disciples, you are criticizing somebody who isn't a part of your group, and that's wrong. As long as they're doing ministry for the promotion of truth and the gospel of Christ, thumbs up to them. And I'm going to tell you something else, disciples. Not everybody in your group has to do the same ministry. Not everybody has to do what you are doing. Some will do more menial tasks, some will cast out demons, some will give water, but it all counts in my book. What he basically is saying is not only shouldn't you be so exclusive to outsiders, but don't be exclusive to insiders. That is, somebody who has a different ministry than you, you shouldn't belittle And you shouldn't think that yours and yours only is the most worthy of ministries. Even if it seems like something so mundane. Nor, if you're doing a mundane ministry, should you say, well, I'm just, this is all I'm doing. This is all I can contribute. It goes back to what we said last week. We have different body parts, and every different body part makes a different contribution. But they are all necessary. That we should be careful of what we say and how we encourage and not discourage others. We shouldn't belittle a different, different ministries as if the only important ministry is the one that I am doing. We should be very careful that if somebody does ministry a different way than I do, somebody else preaches, Some okay, somebody comes along and they preach 15 minutes. I can't imagine that. They preach 15 minutes. Okay? You dare not say to that person, you didn't preach the word of God because you didn't preach an hour like Pastor Wayne does. You weren't even tempted, were you? You won't even, that, won't even, that won't even go anywhere. Okay? That would be the worst of that, you know, you know, pipe dream on my part. We shouldn't criticize somebody who chooses to get in a different ministry than we do. Okay? Here, let me lay it out this way. I have been in the life of Christ for three years now. Okay, teaching that in Sunday school. Why? Because he had a three-year ministry. My staff kept saying, you're going to go longer than Jesus did. Okay, (laughs) It's going to end. Those of you who don't come to my Sunday school, I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) That's a wrong attitude. That's a wrong attitude. If they don't come to my class and that's the only class that's worthwhile, that's wrong. If they don't come to whatever ministry that, that I'm involved in, or you're involved in. That's the most important. Well, we all think that. We all think that that's critical because that's where we're at. That's what we're doing. Okay, the music people, what ministry do they think is real important? Music. Okay, those who are involved with doing projects around here. What ministry do they think is important and would like to see people get involved with? Projects. The nursery leaders, what ministry are they focused on? Nursery? And what new ministry do they want people to get involved with? Nursery? That, that's the nature of the, the whole manner. But does it mean that, that if somebody doesn't get involved with projects, somebody doesn't get involved with music, that they're not spiritual? Not according to this text. Not in, he's not saying that at all. I had this really come to, come to grips about two years ago. There was a Saturday of a ministry happening. And it was three for certain, if not four, things were going on that Saturday. And there was, a, there was one of our missionaries had asked if we could get people to help load up a truck that day in this area. There was somebody in our church was having a funeral for one of their parents, or a, a brother or sister. Took the last detail. One of our widows had asked if we could get a group of people to come and to help do some yard work. And at the same time there was a calling outreach program going. My question to you is this, look at those ministries, which is the important work in ministry? Me, I'm struggling and saying, well, which one should I go to? Which one should I be doing? Which one? And it's like, well, I'll go do, no, 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 I should go do, no, 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 I should go, no, 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 to be really spiritual, I should do, I'll guarantee, I'll guarantee that in, in minds, and I'm guilty of this as well, the one I pick is the one I think is the most important and everybody should choose but is that right? Are all of these valuable ministries? They are. So the real answer to this is, okay, which ones chose the important work of ministry that day? The ones who chose to minister that day. The ones who made the right choice were those who said, I'm going to minister in some way, shape, or form when there was opportunity to minister. So whatever it means, it could be you on that day had other things that were obligating you. But he says if it's a cup of water or if it's casting out demons it has value if it's done in the name of Jesus Christ. So be careful of, of evaluating and devaluating de- others. Serve others. Serve others. That's how we work this. He says as well to be godly build up others. Build up others and minister to others. I have an entire another point that I'm not going to do. I'm going to stop. at this. Don't, don't close up. Okay, I want you to take your hymn book instead and join me at a song. Okay, jump this slides down to the servant's heart, please. Wherever it is, I don't know. It's about another ten slides, and I'll talk about the other things. Boy, you're going faster than me. Woo! Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going. You can do. You are doing great. Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going. We'll we'll put this off and pick it up. Okay but we talked this morning about serving. If you can read it, that's great. Okay, you got all the notes. That's fine. (laughs) But it is so easy it is so easy to just take notes that I fear that if I go any further you're going to lose the significance of what we talked about today. Here we are, we're talking about worshiping, we're talking about serving, we're talking about honoring Jesus Christ. So I would like us to do this today. It's a prayer. I'd like us to pray to the Lord at the end of this service. And while we're praying, we're going to be saying to the Lord, this is what I want to do this week. I want to be a servant. I want to go out of my way helping others. I want to be an encouragement to others. I want to be building up others. I want to be reaching out to others. Help me to have that servant's heart. That's going to be our prayer. Now, if you're here this morning, and I mentioned it briefly, that the need for each and every one of us is to repent and call upon Christ as our Savior that Jesus has given as the greatest of servants he has given his life so that you could have eternal life that the great one came to this earth and took upon himself our sin he who was sinless suffered because of our sins and as a result broken fellowship with the father as the father looked at our sins upon him And then he provides, at the end of it all, a reunion with the Father that says, I will give forgiveness to all. And I will share my righteousness with you so that when the Father looks at you, he sees you cleansed from sin. I only realized that when I was 16 years of age. I'd grown up in a church. I knew about Jesus, but only when I was 16 that somebody explained, I need to personally ask Christ to be my Savior. Did I understand that I needed to pray for me? It wasn't my mom. It wasn't my dad. It wasn't my church. It wasn't my community. It wasn't my, my country that was going to get me to heaven. It was me having a relationship with Christ.